Hey everyone, welcome to another week of Come Follow Me, a Disciples Journey. Uh, this week's study is uh, quite lengthy. We've got 10 chapters to talk about, uh, Alma chapters 43 through 52. Uh, we're in the war, quote unquote, chapters. And so I wanted to proceed the same way I did last week, uh, giving just first an overview of the entire kind of reading and chapters and the concepts that will be covered. And then I'll break down into smaller episodes. I'm not going to do one per chapter this time, as much as I would love doing 10 episodes. Um, I kind of thought about it a few different ways to put them together. And what I landed on was just doing them in pairs. So 43 and 44, 45 and 46 and so on. Uh, I think that for the most part, it actually ends up making pretty good logical sense in the way that the stories unfold and and pairing some things up. Um and so, for example, like uh, chapter 47 and 48 will be together. And I that, that really works out well because chapter 47 is about Amalekiah and his treachery and his wickedness. And chapter 48 is about uh, really heavily about Moroni and his goodness and righteousness and his characteristics and traits. And so you get this good uh, just juxtaposition, right? So that's the way that we'll proceed. And on that note, these chapters to me are pretty... Are, very interesting. I really actually enjoy the war chapters. I know that some people struggle through them and there's, I think, good reason for that. And just in terms of um, a couple things. First of all, I've gone through the Book of Mormon a few times in my life, um, at least at least two times in my life, where all I've done is focused on mentions of Christ and na- different names and references to God or Christ, really. Okay, so God or Christ and, uh, and highlighting them in different colors and different things. Okay, so I've done that a couple times. And in doing so, what you will notice in the war chapters is explicit mentions of the Lord are fewer and f- further between in these chapters. Uh, you know, there's not, it doesn't mention the Lord of hosts and it doesn't mention Christ very much or Jesus by name, but he's there in the way that the people are acting. Um, he's there in the traits that Moroni has. So, that's one thing, a reason, though, I think, why people may struggle a little bit with these chapters. Second thing, reason I think they might struggle a little bit is we get back into some of the weeds, as it were, in terms of understanding who's where, what's going on, because we're going to have some flashbacks of, you know, two things happening at the same time, but we're reading about one at uh, one set of events, and then later on reading about another set of events, but really the time frame is, is the same. Uh, we'll actually get into more of that next week, um, but there's these, you know just different places and locations. There's a lot of movement uh, going on, and it can be hard to keep track of that and who are, who's who, where are they, things like that. So I think those two things, the the a seeming lack of mentions of Christ, and then just the all of the events and places and and things that are going on make this somewhat confusing section of the Book of Mormon. Um, and I think that may be why some people struggle with it a little bit or don't like it as much as other parts. Parts I actually really like the, the this section of the Book of Mormon. So my hope is that I will be able to kind of address those two things, those two concerns, the confusion and then the seeming lack of of Christ being present in these chapters, explicitly mentioned or named. So that's kind of my goal with this week's discussions uh, through the chapters. 
But like I was saying earlier, I really like these chapters and I think there's some really interesting things. Um, I think to me, I see Mormon's expertise in as a writer and a historian come through in these chapters. So for a few things, at least three reasons. First of all, remember who Mormon was, okay? He was a prophet, yes. He was a historian, yes. What else was he? He was a general. He was the commander of an army. It's what he did a lot of his life. And so these chapters and this section and portion of the history of his people, I think would ring and relate to him. He would relate to it, I should say. Uh, so much so that, keep in mind, who who does he love so much? Who does he say, if all men could be in wherever like unto who? Moroni. What does he name his son? He named his son Moroni. I don't think it's a coincidence. I think he's reading this, going through this section of the uh, history of his people and abridging it and putting it onto his record, his plates, under the gold plates. And he comes across Moroni, he comes across these wars. I think he sees a lot of similarities to his time. I think he sees a lot of similarities to our time who and that time that was shown to him by the Lord. And then he sees this great leader come forth out of it. He sees Moroni um, and names his son Moroni. I wouldn't be surprised to learn in, in the next life when, we're, when I'm chatting with my with old Mormon that I wouldn't be surprised to find out that, it, that as he was compiling this section, when he was abridging this section of their history, is when he had Moroni, when his son was born, and uh, thus giving him the name Moroni after Captain Moroni. Um, so anyway, that's the first thing, is just the this the connection between Mormon and the time that he's abridging right now and that we're reading. Uh, the second thing that's really interesting to me is in the first two chapters we're going to read, chapters 43 and 44, we get this first war with Captain Moroni and a man named Zarahemna and couple of the principles that Alma had just taught his son in chapters 39 through 42 that Mormon had put into his record are uh, about mercy and justice and uh, the way that the Lord works and the way the the role of the law in mercy and justice and things like that. Uh, And then in chapters 43 and 44, we get this war and we get Moroni offering mercy with a law attached to it. Um, And you get Zarahemna rejecting that mercy and wanting to do his own thing. Um, And so I'll discuss that more in chapters 43 and 44. But so that over that, to me, that stands out because it's just happened. It's he Mormon has just written Alma's words to his son, Corianton. And then there's this event that he's then trans is transcribing onto his plates and abridging about this war. He's, he's reading the history, right? And he comes first across Alma's words and then he, he hits these things about this war. And he says, hey, you know what? I just told you guys, I wrote just wrote in here about mercy and justice. And now here's this great story that is, uh, an, is an example. It, it, it displays this in a way that you can then learn more about it. So that's, so the first thing is his role as a, as a general in the army and how these chapters, I think, relate to him, and you can see the way that he writes about them. Uh, the second thing is the, uh, the, the highlighting of mercy and justice right after talking about mercy and justice. And then another great, just like, I think, 
insight to his ability and his talent as a historian and as a writer, Mormon is who I'm talking about, is, as I mentioned a little briefly earlier, chapters 47 and 48, where he gives us this beautiful juxtaposition of two leaders, Amalekiah and uh, Moroni, and the difference between them. What's the difference between a bad leader and a good leader? What's the difference between an unrighteous and a righteous leader? Um, and it's this, this black and white, like you read, when you read chapters 47, 48 back to back, you can see the treachery. Like I said, you can see just how cunning and evil Malachi is and the way in the leadership, his leadership style full of lies and deceit compared to Moroni's and what his, um, focus is. So with that said, um, what I want to now talk about is how we can apply these war chapters in our lives. Yes, yes, absolutely. Mormon saw our day and saw that we would live in a time of wars and rumors of wars and contention. And we surely do and we surely will. But it's more than that, I think. I think it comes down to uh, a sp- the spiritual warfare that we are engaged in. Uh, the battle for our souls that started before this earth and has never stopped. And what we can learn from these chapters, wartime chapters, in conflict, how do people behave? Where do they turn to? Uh, what makes them be successful? What kinds of leaders are they looking to for that success? What are the How are the leaders um, acting? How are the leaders leading? These are all things that we can learn. How do we protect our homes? How do we protect our, our own spirituality, our own testimonies? How do we defend them as Moroni defended cities, right? And I think that there are a lot of different ways that you can look at these verse, these chapters. But if you start to look at them through more spiritual eyes and to say, okay, a city isn't a city. It maybe is a, a Christ-like attribute. How can I defend this Christ-like attribute? How can I can I cl- conquer or claim this Christ-like attribute and, and use it for good? Um, there's a lot of different ways that if we start looking through spiritual eyes, you can learn from these chapters. So, first of all, just to kind of start you on that journey, or encourage you to continue down that journey, I should say, rather, um, think of Moroni as a type of Christ, and think of uh, Amalekiah and the other wicked leaders we're going to read about as types of Satan, as, as examples of Satan. Their leadership styles, what's their focus, the way in which they lead, right? Okay. And then think of yourself as the, the, the ones who are following you, either of those. How are those people behaving and acting? What are the consequences? Um, and then start applying that to your own personal life, your own home life, to your family, to your work life, right? Okay, so that's, that's one thing. Next thing, well, that's very interesting to me, is when you look at the percentage of the Book of Mormons, I think, uh, I, I should know this, 531 pages, I think. So, uh, the war chapters, chapters including chapters 43 and 44, but chapters 43 through 63 of Alma are about 54 chapters, or chapters, 54 pages. So, more than 10%, or roughly 10% of the Book of Mormon is this right now, the war chapters. We're about to be reading this week and next week. So, ask yourself, why would Mormon do that? Would he really do it just to teach us about you know, that we're going to live in wartime 
I think that's part of it. Like I said, how do people behave and how do you act in literal wartime? Absolutely. But what he's, what he, he really, what he really put a tenth and use up a tenth of his plates on that. If there wasn't something more, um, the next thing is just a couple thoughts I had to share about, um, war and, you know, the type of situation that these Nephites were put into. We read in chapter 48 that they, you know, they were, um, and maybe it's 46 now that my mind's, my mind is slipping, but we read in these chapters that, uh, they were sad to be the means by which the, so many of their brethren were sent out of the world. They didn't want to go to the battle against the Lamanites. They didn't want to have to kill them, right? But they did. And there are many quotes, um, from general authorities about, about this and about, um, you know, whether or not it's okay to fight in war and kill. Uh, briefly, let me just say the answer is yes, is what they've said. Yes, it is. We follow, you know, your country, whatever country you, you are in, you follow your leaders. Um, and that, uh, it's okay to do those things. Uh, the, the second thing, and as a matter of fact, in World War II, the first presidency who, that was, uh, it was Heber J. Grant, uh, J. Reuben Clark, and David O. McKay, uh, April 1942. So keep in mind, World War II had already been kind of going. Uh, the U.S. had just joined the, the war uh, five or so months before this, uh, after the attack on Pearl Harbor. And so that's when they had officially joined the war. And so in that next conference, they they gave an specifically addressed this and is it okay as as Christians as members of Christ Church what do you do in that situation and they long story short they said yes it's okay um, later on during uh, in the sixties uh, President Packer Elder Packer at the time referenced that address and then added to it in a in a conference address uh, reiterating that. Uh, that sentiment. Uh, something interesting to note that I learned from my my good old friend C.S. Lewis: the Hebrew and Greek languages both have different words for kill, right? Um, and when we read "Thou shalt not kill," it's actually the word murder, right? Uh, and so, in in both the Greek and the Hebrew, it. In the Old Testament and New Testament, that's actually the word that's used. And so C.S. Lewis makes it a point. And remember, C.S. Lewis lived, he fought in World War I uh, and then lived during World War II. Much of his great book, uh, Mere Christianity, was talks on the radio first to, during World War II. So that's what he was like living through. And he was making the point uh, basically the same as the first presidency made in 1942 that there is an, there is an okay time to kill the lord never likes it never it's not something he li- likes and enjoys he's sad when when there is war but he's not going to hold it against uh, a soldier for doing their duty to their country so i just wanted to point that out some things as i was studying this week that i came across um last couple things and then we'll get into the chapters and we'll into the next uh, episodes but uh one thing i wanted for sure to read was ephesians chapter 6 and talking about spiritual warfare and why I think these chapters are applicable to us, no matter when we live or where we live, but especially in our day 
with wars, rumors of wars that are physical and and tangible wars of a temporal nature, but also of spiritual wars. Paul teaches us that we need to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Okay, so this is the chapter where we get the the armor of God. But but he says that he introduces the armor of God, and but before he tells us exactly what pieces of the armor are and what they mean and things. He says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace above all taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of god and so he then goes into the, the to the armor of god but first he says there is a war and you need to be prepared for it but it's not a flesh a blood of a war of flesh and blood but we're wrestling against principalities uh against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. All right, so when we're fighting that battle and that war, we need to have the whole armor of God. And how do we need to fight? Who should our leader be? How should they lead? How should we be leading? And how should we be acting? We can learn those things from these chapters. Uh, Next thing uh, I wanted to do actually too is uh, just tell you guys a story. So this story actually comes from Elder Lance B. Wickman. He, I think, is now emeritus, uh, 70. He might still be 70. Uh, he came and visited my mission uh, when I was a missionary in uh, in the central United States area. And he told us a story from when he was in the military. He fought in Vietnam, uh, the Vietnam War. So uh, they were stationed, his, his platoon was stationed in uh, Hawaii, I find this story easier to tell it not, I don't have direct quotes from him, but I find it easier to tell it in a first person fashion, more or less. So I, I may reference and say I or we, but I'm going to be just kind of telling it from his perspective. I wasn't there. Side note, did not fight in Vietnam. He did. Okay. So they were stationed though in, uh, in Hawaii and they, uh, did not have any expectations of being deployed. Uh, I don't remember why he said, I don't remember if it was kind of things were, they felt like, I don't remember if it was at the beginning when they thought things were going to go really smoothly and quickly, which is how the Vietnam War started, or if it was towards kind of the end when they just kind of thought no more troops were going to be deployed. I don't, I don't recall why he said, but he, he said they felt safe. They felt as though they were not going to be deployed. And so they would be doing, they would have these, um, exercises to training exercises, but they were pretty lax, he said, most of the time. So now that I'm telling the story, I may not actually do first person. So if I do, don't be mad. I warned you. If I don't, then also don't be mad. I don't know. Whatever. So anyway, he said, though, that one day he they report for their training and their, their sergeant or leader. I don't know. I'm, I may get these words wrong. So if you're in the military and I sound like an idiot, it's probably because I am. I apologize. But their sergeant or whoever, you know, was started uh, this training exercise particularly hard, harshly on them. And they were kind of caught off guard because it was different than they had had been. And so 
their task was to dig foxholes as though they had just landed on a beach. Um, and so there was a mock, you know, they're uh, landing. So they land on the beach and then they're supposed to dig foxholes and set up their defensive positions as though they were really, as if they were going to be in a battle. He said they'd done this exercise many times before, but typically what they would do um, is they would take chalk and they would draw on the volcanic rock and on different things uh, to simulate where they would, you know, at what point they would dig these foxholes and set up their artillery and, and things like that. Uh, but this time that wasn't good enough. They had to actually dig. They had to chip away at, you know, so it wasn't all on volcanic rock, but it spread out and some of it was on some of the volcanic rock and they had to dig and chip away and they had to actually bring out their artillery and set it up. Other platoons he saw there, their, their drill, their, their, their sergeants or whatever, they, they let them do the normal thing and they were off and they, they got, they got their little check mark for the day and they moved on and went out and did their thing and they just were dismissed. But his group was not. And uh, so they thought they'd finished and the guy came, their sergeant came and he measured the distance between everything and measured the depth and everything. And things were just off. They were not, they were off by inches and by a a few feet here and there. And so he made them fix it and do it exactly right. And so by this time, everyone else is long gone sun's going down they've been there all day and it you know caught them off guard because it wasn't something they were even prepared to do but they um start doing it the next so they finish it the next day same thing and this time he throws the book at like literally like tosses the the guidebook at them and says do it to the exact specifications don't don't mess up so they do it and but it takes them all day to do this and he said you know the, the sergeant would kind of come and go and come and check on them and leave and then come back and check on them. And when he wasn't there, he said the, that sergeant's name was spoken with a lot of expletives around it. People heard were irate and upset. They couldn't understand why he was doing this. What was going on? Like why was he being so different and so difficult? And this was ridiculous. And they, you know, were cursing his name. He comes back and he checks it off and says, all right, you're free to go. So, uh, they go back, they're tired, they're beat down, two days of hard work, they go to bed, they wake up in the morning, and they have orders that their platoon is being shipped off to Vietnam. They didn't know that, but their sergeant did, right? So, they gather their things, and they get on the boats or whatever, you know, right. And they ship out to Vietnam and sure enough, they get in there. They end up getting into the amphibious type vehicles, making a shore landing on Vietnam in the middle of a, in the middle of a firefight. Um, and what do they have to do as soon as they arrive on the beach? They have to dig foxholes exactly to the specifications doing exactly uh, what they had been preparing earlier that week to a T every man knew their knew his job and they did it exactly uh, at the end of the night their platoon as night oh, I should say as night fell and the gunfiring kind of stopped for the night 
not a single man from his platoon had died that day. There were other platoons around who had landed and made the landing who had lost men. But that in that fight, not a single man from his from Elder Wickman's platoon had, had had died. They got there, they dug their foxholes, they set up their equipment and their uh, weapons, and they were prepared because of a because of a leader who had prepared them. He said that night when the fighting kind of died down and they looked around at each other, that sergeant whose job it wasn't whose job it was not to come with them to Vietnam. His job was to prepare them. And he remained back in Hawaii. His name was spoken. Again, Elder Wickman said he heard his name spoken, but this time with much more reverence and gratitude. I share this story because it was from wartime. But I think there are a lot of lessons that we can learn for our life in being prepared and following our leaders and being a good leader and being good parents. There are, there are so many lessons that you can pick out from that story that can apply to your life if you've never even seen a gun, let alone held it or shot one or been in the military. Because it's not about that. It's about fighting a spiritual battle that no matter what, no matter whether you think so or not, when you step out that door and every morning... The enemy's weapons are being fired at you. Do you have the right foxholes? Are you prepared? Have you been following the right leaders? So, I wanted—I really wanted to share that story with you all. Um, final thing before we start and I end this episode and we start talking about the chapters is I just wanted to high-level, really quickly overview where are we in the Book of Mormon? War chapters, what's just happened? Remember back in chapters 32, 1 through 34, uh, Alma and his, his friends were in Antionum with the Zoramites trying to reclaim them. We learn in chapter 35 that they were largely unsuccessful at that. In the Zoramites, they, they joined the Lamanites. That, and then we had this two weeks where we read Alma's words, but if you go back to chapter 35, the Zoramites joining the Lamanites is what leads to chapter 43. And we'll get a beginning, we'll get a glimpse of that at the beginning of chapter 43. Um, and I'll talk more about that, but I just wanted to remind you all how we got here, where are we? It's a high-level overview introduction to this week's chapters, the war chapters. I hope you'll join with me uh, over the next few episodes as we discuss these chapters and discuss Moroni and the Nephite people and their preparations and um, how they handled war and conflict. And I, I sincerely hope that this week as you study, you will ask the Lord how you can apply these lessons into your life and your family's lives and how you can uh, fortify your homes. So thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.